Welcome to our Spotlight Sessions, a series of CPD-eligible podcasts shining light on important topics to consider now and for the future. This week, we're joined by Charles Stanley's Chief Global Strategist, John Redwood, Senior Analyst Lynn Hutchinson, and Chief Investment Commentator, Gary White. Together, they debate the merits of active and passive investing in times of crisis and what we think might happen next. Hello and welcome to this latest Charles Stanley podcast. Today we're going to be looking at active and passive investing. I have Lynn Hutchinson, who's ETF analyst here, uh, passive analyst at Charles Stanley, uh, and John Redwood as well. So um, first I'm going to go to Lynn. Um, and we should sort of start really defining exactly what we mean by active and passive investing. Okay, well, managers of an equity index tracking fund or ETFs they simply look to own the stocks in a given market index like the MSCI World or the S&P 500. They don't make active decisions to buy or sell a holding outside that index. However, they will make an active decision to manage their dividend receipts, but also when to buy or sell a holding in the fund that the index is tracking. So what I mean by that is that they don't rebalance their fund on the same day as the index is rebalancing because the prices of those stocks can go higher or lower, and this can move it away from tracking. So the funds usually trade around two weeks either side of the index balance. On the other side, active fund managers take a hands-on approach, where the investment manager makes the decision as to what to buy and sell. Their goal is to beat the returns of a particular index, which they may choose to monitor against the returns of their active fund. Okay, great. Thanks, Lynn. Um, so why are the costs with acting fund, active funds so much higher than the majority of these index tracking products? Well, there can be large differences in costs from active funds over passive index tracking funds, and mainly due to the fact that active managers have to be employed and paid. But also there's a research team of analysts that look at various stock or country fundamentals. These funds involve a deeper analysis and expertise to know when to move in, it, in and out of a particular stock, a bond or any asset class, as well as the additional costs due to more frequent trading. Essentially, it requires confidence in the investment manager to know when it's the right time to buy or sell. The ETFs and index funds are lower cost because there is nobody picking stocks as the fund follows the index changing. So oversight is much less expensive. They still pay employees to manage the product itself, but the funds simply follow the index. So there's no cost for specific research or an active manager selecting the holdings to be in the fund. This can make it a very cost-effective way to invest. Ultimately, the passive funds make specific changes to the funds when the index provider, like the MSCI or FTSE, make this decision. Brilliant. Thanks. So, John, let's come to you now. If, uh, you know, if passive investing can be cheaper but active investment more targeted, should you be an active or a passive investor? Well, I think, Gary, you need to be a bit of both. Indeed, most people do have a bit of the active and a bit of the passive management in their approach to investment. Every investment begins with active choices. As Lynn has said, there's a range of exchange-traded funds out there. You, you could buy the American Stock Exchange Index, or you could buy the British Stock Exchange Index, or you could buy an index of government bonds or, or government debts. But somebody has to decide which index they're going to buy uh, and which area of the world they wish to be most represented in. 
So we at Charles Stanley say um, all investment is quite expensive because you need good people who, who need properly remunerating. So it's probably a good idea to spend quite a bit of your investment management budget on making those very important choices about asset allocation. When you first decide to do something with your savings, you have to make that decision. Do you want to buy shares? They're, they're risky, but they might earn you better returns. Uh, do you want deposit-like instruments? Do you want to lend your money to governments because the advanced country governments will repay you and they, they will meet their interest payments on time, although you may suffer a bit from inflation. So you have to make decisions about shares or bonds, some people like property. Uh, that's called the asset allocation decision, very important decision. It will actually be the decision which makes the most impact on how much money you earn and whether you make extra money on gains or whether you lose money because markets are against you. Uh, you then come on to the question that when you've decided you would like to have say half your portfolio in shares and half your portfolio in, in government bonds and debt, uh, you have to determine how you're going to choose those shares and those bonds. And as Lynn has said, it's a lot cheaper uh, to make, for example, your share investment in America or Britain by buying an index tracking fund uh, than it is uh, by going to an active manager. But if you go to an active manager, they may do better than the index. Uh, they may be able to target your investments in ways that you like. Uh, and so some people pay the extra investment charge on top of the asset management decisions uh, to get that active expertise to try and choose the right shares or, or the right bonds. Others say, we don't think that's so important. We'd rather save some fees and choose the, the passive route instead. Excellent. Thanks, John. So basically, asset allocation is more important and all these decisions about whether to do it passively or actively come after that decision. That's right, yes. And uh, you have to decide how far down the decision tree you want to go. You, you cannot avoid having to make decisions when you set up your savings or portfolio about how much you have in shares and how much you have in bonds. Uh, you then might trust an investment manager to make all the other decisions, and he might want to be active on most of those decisions, or he may wish to cut some of the costs with some passive implementation. Or you may wish to be involved in the next level of decision, having said you'd like half your portfolio in shares, you then have to say, well, is that world shares or is that American shares or is that British shares? Start talking about geographies. You might also want to talk about themes or sectors. So you might want to say, uh, I'm very optimistic about the way the world is moving to online and digital technology. So I want more representation in that area. Uh, or you might say that there are some areas of the market you really don't like. And if you're a green enthusiast, you might want to say to your manager, uh, you don't want to invest heavily in companies that are making lots of money out of promoting oil, gas and coal. Uh, and these are then decisions that you can get involved with, but there will be a price because the, uh, the more specific and the more detailed you want your investment manager to be, the more expertise is involved and the more time is consumed. Excellent. So now let's move on to a couple of more technical questions for Lynn. Um, so Lynn, what's the main difference or the differences between an exchange traded fund and an index fund? Okay, so the, there are quite a few differences, but I'd say the main difference is that ETFs are traded on stock markets. 
and not directly with the issue of a fund, which means that you can trade an ETF any time of the day the stock market that that ETF is listed on is open for trading. On the other side, with an index fund, you can only trade once per day with the fund issue at the likes of Vanguard or LNG. Excellent. So it looks like uh, dynamic passive funds and portfolios are becoming more popular. Could you give us an insight to what exactly these are? Yep. Uh, these type of portfolios and models have been available for many years now. They range of portfolios for investors to use depending on the amount of risk they are willing to accept in a stock market portfolio. And they range from defensive to aggressive strategies. The model portfolios invest in a variety of assets like large, mid-cap and small-cap equities, but also bonds and property funds. The asset allocation is decided by the model manager, who then incorporates funds to cover their chosen country asset allocations, as John mentioned earlier. These are rebalanced regularly to buy and sell holdings that have gone up or down in value and to go back to your charge chosen target asset allocation. The investor makes the decision of which model portfolio fits their goal and the model portfolio manager makes the decision of the asset allocation weights and rebalancing periods. A model portfolio can be a great way to help you get what you want as an investor. It gives you market performance returns. It's time efficiency for an investor because ongoing portfolio management, including rebalancing, is done for you. And effectiveness because rebalancing is done regularly. And rebalancing can improve portfolio performance, especially when it comes to managing the portfolio's overall risk. Excellent. Thanks, Lynn. So there's an important sort of point that we need to make here, I think, sort of like from the, the discussions we've had so far. There seems to be a sort of debate about, you know, what's better, active or passive investing. And, and there's no real answer to that. You know, the truth is that, you know, it's all a holistic solution and there is no real tension between active and passive investing. Is that is that right, John? I think the um, tension between them is exaggerated because uh, it's very difficult to see that anyone has a purely passive or a purely active fund. We've already dealt with how you can't have a purely passive fund. You've got to make active decisions at the beginning about which assets you hold and which in indices you decide to buy. I mean, for example, let us say you wanted to have high exposure to American shares. You then need to make a decision about which index. Is that the NASDAQ index, which has a bit more technology in it, or is it the Standard & Poor's index, uh, which is a better representation of larger companies generally, or is it smaller companies index, which captures more of the smaller growth companies, or is it the old Dow Jones index, which has more of the traditional names uh, as an important weight in it. So you have to make that kind of active decision. But I would also say that there's no such thing as a completely um, active portfolio usually either. Quite often, people buy active funds because they, they find investment managers who are really good at choosing the American shares that will beat the American index or the British shares that will beat the FTSE 100 index, but they just leave that holding and say, well, I just want to hold shares. Uh, I want a good active manager for those shares. So they're making a passive decision about asset allocation. Uh, as Lynn has said, um, one of the attractive ways of proceeding is to combine the two expressly uh, with the dynamic passive approach. And that is based on the theory that you make or lose more money by making the right or wrong calls about which assets you should be in than you do out of share selection. Uh, so if you're in a bear market, even if you choose very good shares, you might not make very much money overall. 
Uh, if you're in a bull market, an awful lot of things go up. Uh, and probably the big volatilities in the market overall have a more important impact on your portfolio uh, than your particular choice of shares. Uh, so Dynamic Passive incorporates that thinking uh, into these funds and says, well, uh, that amount of money you can spend on investment expertise, let's, let's spend it on people who study uh, whether shares or bonds or property are likely to go up or down and which ones are likely to do best uh, in general terms and, and back those bets in a sensible way. Uh, and that is a perfectly good compromise between active and passive. But there are also some extremely good active funds out there. And so you can go to Charles Stanley or another investment manager to try and identify which active managers are really good at choosing shares. And then you have the opportunity to do a bit better than the, the passive alternative. But as Lynn has warned you, you will be paying extra for it. So it's pretty important you get that decision right. Excellent. Thank you, John. So, Lynn, if we go to some of the more nitty gritty now, we so um, let's talk about choosing a specific exchange traded fund or passive investment. You know, how do you actually... I mean, this is what you do on a daily basis. So, you know, how do you assess an index tracking vehicle for inclusion in, in portfolios? You know, what are the key things that you look at when you're assessing one of these funds? Yeah, I have a very detailed ongoing due diligence selection before any project makes it to our fund list. And it's both for inclusion to begin with and also to remain on the list. And the selection assessment is very similar to how the due diligence is done on an active fund. The main difference being that I assess the index, whereas an active fund selector would assess the actual investment manager. So it's crucial that you know what the aim of the index is and what the selection methodology process is, particularly for factor or thematic products. So many funds and indices have very similar names, but they can track wildly different underlying assets. The two of the main index providers like FTSE or MSCI, FTSE tends to follow the whole world whereas MSCI may just use developed country companies. This can produce a large difference in performance returns. And similarly for factor indices like value or dividend strategies, the selection of companies in indices can be very different depending on how, how they do their selection criteria, whether they choose for dividend ETFs, whether they choose just the highest yielding companies, or whether they look at the fundamentals of the actual companies to include those companies in the index. Excellent. Thanks, Lynn. And so how important is cost in your selection? Mm. Well, cost is not just about the total expenditure issue. It should also include what you're likely to be charged on the bid and offer trading spreads, which is your transaction costs. This can significantly increase your one-year cost from the start of your investments. So all investors into equities or funds have to pay transaction costs. The broker doesn't trade for free and the fund manager and issuer of the fund does not bear the cost of these trades. For a fund, active or passive, check whether that trading cost is paid by the investor or the disinvestor in a fund. So a single price of a fund on screen will still adjust for the cost of trading in and out of that fund. If not, this means that the underlying investors already in the fund bear the brunt of those new trading costs ultimately means the underlying investors in the fund are paying for those coming in and out of the fund, which is not good and affects your returns in that fund. 
Excellent. That's interesting. Now, why would you choose an ETF over an index fund, for example? You know, what are the advantages of an exchange-traded fund? Okay, so firstly, there's a number of ETFs available. It's much larger than what is available in an index tracking fund. Could be there's roughly one ETF launched a day uh, globally. I mean, there's obviously closures as well, but the, the scope of selection is much wider. Another example is that trading a UK equity ETF on the stock market can be hugely beneficial over a UK equity index fund tracking the same index. And this is due to the, what I mentioned earlier, the bidding offer trading spreads. So a unit trust fund creates new units each time an investor buys that fund which means that the UK stamp duty of 0.5% is charged on every underlying company being bought. For the UK equity ETF on the secondary stock market, this has already been paid when the ETF units were created. So the difference in spreads for UK units fund can be as wide as 0.7%, whereas for a UK equity ETF, this can be as small as 0.05%. The difference can be years of total expense ratio costs, and that's substantial. These are costs that need to be taken into account at the time of choice of which product to include. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And do you actually prefer any fund provider? There's some ETF fund providers that obviously offer a premium service over others. Um, the level of service and reporting information from the sales or investment teams is also a factor. Having the ability to obtain information timely on requests on products and the index being tracked is a key provider service. Excellent. And, and what products would you like to see more of? Because, you know, there is a whole array of funds, but, you know, yeah. what would you like to see more, more produced into the market? Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, there's a large selection from ETF products and some following the same index. S&P 500 is one of them, which is unhelpful. I would certainly like to see a better offering from the index tracking fund providers in terms of single country exposure or currency hedging options, a good selection of small piece of products or ESG or socially responsible options would be really good to see. Yeah, because socially responsible investing or ethical investing is becoming really significant really now, possible. isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and so where could they improve, ETF providers? You deal with them all the time. Um, uh, where, where do you think they could do better? I, I, well, education has been won, but they have been improving on this. But also improvements on the ETF trading through some platforms. Now, this is still way behind what I would like to see. There's been ongoing discussions with ETF providers and platform providers um, to make this level of service better, but it's still woefully lagging the times and has been dragging on for years without that much improvement from what I can, I've seen so far. Excellent. Thanks, Lynn. Now, now, turning back to John, we were talking about asset allocation earlier and how it's really important. I mean, does everyone need an asset allocation? You know, if everyone there considering their portfolio, should they be aware of what their asset allocation is? Yes, you, you, you have to have one. You save some money. Uh, if you put it in the bank, that's an asset allocation decision. You said, right, I haven't got a lot of savings. I might need them in a hurry, so I'll just put them in the bank. which should be safe. Uh, and then you get a bit more saving and you say, well, this is a bit silly. I'm not really earning any interest on my bank savings. Uh, I don't need them in the next few months. Uh, so let me look at my investment options and you then might decide to buy a bond or you might decide to make a stock exchange investment. That's an asset allocation decision. So, yes, everybody has to make an asset allocation decision, whether they realize it or not. 
The other point to remember is that every day you have savings out there in one form or another, you are continuing to make an asset allocation decision. And some people say, oh, well, you know, I make an asset allocation decision and leave it. Uh, but every day you are effectively endorsing the asset allocation decision you made at the beginning. And so sometimes it's a good idea to look at it again and say, is that still what I want? Is it still meeting my requirements? And your asset allocation decision has a number of important issues that it tries to settle. And that's where you may need to talk to an investment professional uh, to help you think it through. Uh, you, you need to answer the question, um, what are my savings for? How long do I want to carry on saving? Um, am I prepared to take some investment risk because I want some capital gains? If you want capital gains, you, you've got to allow for the fact that you might make a capital loss. Do I have an income requirement? If so, how do I meet that income requirement at a time when deposit rates are near zero and the yield on quite a lot of investments, the amount of income you can get on them, is pretty depressed by the fact that we're living in an era of very low interest rates. So yes, anyone with savings has an asset allocation, whether they recognize it or not, uh, and it is that asset allocation, that first set of decisions, which will really determine whether at the end of the year you're going to be better off or worse mm. off. And, and you must review these asset allocation decisions regularly. I mean, we've seen circumstances change over the last few months with the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, your asset allocation, as you were looking at it three or four months ago, is, is very different than, than now, I would suggest. Well, indeed, Gary. And, and you attend our morning meeting and you know that every morning we could review our asset allocation if something important happened. Um, sometimes something happens, which is really good news. You, you forecast something, it's come true, but all the prices are shot up. So you think, well, maybe I should take some of the profit. That was what I was expecting to happen. Sometimes something happens which you weren't expecting. It's potentially bad news. So you might need to say, well, I did think that group of assets was very good, but this really does change things. Uh, we need to rejig. And we've just been through a very difficult few months uh, because we needed to recognize very early on uh, that the virus was spreading. It's going to be very damaging to, to shares and rather better for government bonds. Uh, and then more recently, we've had to recognize that the economic and financial response to the crisis is so huge that markets were prepared to look through the obvious damage being done to economies and were prepared to boost asset prices again because of a wall of money coming, first of all, from the American Central Bank, the Federal Reserve Board, but now also coming from the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan. People's Bank of China. They're all at it. They're all producing enormous quantities of new cash and new lending. And this is sustaining markets despite the bad economic news. So yes, we have to think that through and make sensible dispositions in people's portfolios who come to us for advice. Excellent. And so, you know, let's probably, uh, if both of you could answer this. So, so, you know, how do passive funds exercise you know, shareholder duties, because, you know, there is a duty uh, of, you know, for supervising boards and stuff. But if you're invested in a passive fund, how does that actually happen? Do you want to take that job? Yes, well, some of the, um, some of the passive funds are, are really good at this. Um, it's a myth to think that because you bought a passive, um, the, the people running the money are not interested in the management of the companies. So, um, the good passive managers say, because we have to keep a holding in this company because it's in the index, 
we have even more interest mm. than the active manager in making sure that, that that company is well run because we're going to be owning companies that are badly run as well as companies that are well run. So quite a lot of the active, uh, the passive funds now uh, do vote their holdings. They take an interest in shareholder resolutions. And if they think boards are misbehaving or making bad judgments, uh, they will intervene directly as well as voting the holding. Uh, so Lynn, do you have any comments on that? I completely agree with John on that point. And what we have seen over the last few years is the, is the index fund providers have increased uh, their employees in this in this area. So expected to increase even further going on. Yeah, no, it, it does seem more important than for uh, if you're in an index fund to actually get involved in this than if you're actually in sort of an active fund that, 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 that you know, people can move in and out of. And it reminds us that passive funds are actively managed yes. <laughs> in order to stay in with the index and in order to deal with the duties uh, as shareholders. Because, of course, uh, we're just living through one of the quite frequent changes in what holdings are in some of the underlying big indices of world stock markets. Uh, and so when uh, you get a change, as we're getting at the moment in the FTSE 100, where uh, some of the less successful companies drop out and some of the more successful companies not in the index are admitted to it, uh, then the passive fund manager has to go out and sell the shares that are leaving the index and buy the shares that are joining the index. So uh, there is active management in that sense. The reason I think they can keep the, the fees down so much, despite having these obvious management requirements, is largely to do with the fact that successful ETFs, successful index trackers, become very big um, and they get the economies of scale so that uh, uh, a few people can manage billions of pounds worth of money in the big indices. Excellent. Super. So, no, it's been a very discussion, interesting discussion. Thank you for joining us today. So, if we'd like to summarise what we've said over the last half hour or so, Lynn, what would you say with the, the, for you are the most important things that have come out of this discussion? As John mentioned, you know, choose your asset allocation, choose what risk uh, you're looking for as an investor. But then if you're choosing a, a path of funds, really look under the bonnet to see what, what is that fund is actually tracking and make sure it matches what your investment goals are. Yeah, super. John, do you have any, any final thoughts for us? Well, my final thought is just to stress that everybody has an asset allocation. Everybody needs a good asset allocation suited to their circumstances. When you then come to decide how to make the individual investments, um, you might want to try and find an active manager that's really good at share picking, or you might want to keep the cost down a bit more, uh, which takes you to something like dynamic passive investing, uh, where the expertise you buy concentrates on the asset allocation and you have the cheapest possible implementation. Excellent. So thank you very much for joining me today, John and Lynn. And I hope the listeners at home enjoyed this podcast too. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're a financial advisor and would like to receive a CPD certificate for this podcast, please click the link in the descriptor to complete a short questionnaire. If you have any questions, please contact events at charles-stanley.co.uk. Once again, thank you for listening. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Investors may get back less than invested. Past performance is not a reliable guide to the future.